At about 3 p.m., fast food restaurants across the country start filling up with teenagers. Burgers and fries seem to go hand in hand with kids. In fact, I will often joke that if you want to find a McDonald's, all you need to do is find a high school. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. Today we look into the mysterious lives of teenagers and food. Later, we share new guidelines about riding in Ubers with kids and how to treat children with concussions. If people get multiple mild concussions back to back, that could have a more severe effect than uh, a traumatic brain injury even, or a severe concussion. But first, to learn more about kids' eating habits, George Mason University sociologist Amy Best went straight to the source. Through careful observation in cafeterias and fast food joints, Best gained some insights into why kids eat what they do and how to push them to make better choices. Amy, where were you when you first started thinking about kids in fast food? I was actually at a fast food restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> because you were hungry or because you were observing? I, well, I, I actually went there just to eat. And I got myself some food, and I was sitting down to do some grading. And I looked around, and it was right at the end of the school day. And all of a sudden, there was just a flood of kids. And I had just come off of another research project. And I thought, wow, what's going on here? This is really interesting. And I went back a couple more times. And then I thought, hmm, I wonder if it's like this in other places. What did you notice about kids who go to Chipotle? What was happening as they were enjoying meals in groups? I noticed lots of food talk that was really interesting about kids' identities as girls and boys. I saw lots of food sharing that seemed to be about friendships and friendship groups. I saw lots of gifting that was occurring. Interestingly, I did not see a lot of gifting that went from boys to girls, but I saw lots that went from girls to boys, and I saw some that went from boys to boys. Oh, and girls to girls, of course. Of course. What do you make of the way girls see food and the way boys see food when it comes to sharing? So boys don't always want to share their food. <laughs> yeah. Um, and girls were much more willing to share their food. In fact, at one time I was in a school that was a school where kids, the only way they could gain access to soda was by bringing it in from home. And there was a boy had a can of soda, which he didn't want. It was a Coca-Cola. And he offered it to a girl. And a girl, with such surprise, said, me? And he ended up giving it to her. And she received it very happily as a gift from him. And that was one of the only occasions that I watched a boy give food to a girl. Now, for me, I think this is about how girls learn to be the givers of food and boys learn to be the receivers of food. You went to a number of restaurants. In particular, which fast food places did you tend to observe? So in the beginning, I went to lots of different places. Chipotle, Baskin-Robbins, Dairy Queen, Panera, McDonald's, of course. And I ended up narrowing my focus and spent time in four different McDonald's, all a close walk within a block of high schools. In fact, I will often joke that if you want to find a McDonald's, all you need to do is find a high school. Really? They are in close distance. 
And um, and then I also went to Chipotle and really focused on Juan Chipotle and these few McDonald's and found these very interesting scenes. So one of the McDonald's that I went to, which is across the street from a school that primarily serves upper income kids, it's in a, in a wealthy community. I got there expecting to see kids after school because I had seen kids after school in these other McDonald's, only to find that there was mostly retired um, immigrant populations there. McDonald's didn't have a lot of appeal for these kids. And when I talked to them in interviews, I found that most of the girls said, Ugh, McDonald's, that's unhealthy. That might be okay for boys, but we wouldn't go there. Where'd you find they were going? So they, <laughs> they would go to what I would consider the higher end fast food. There's fast food that's... Um, made with organic ingredients and sustainable meats. And then there's fast food that is sort of the standard mass-produced fast food uh, where health considerations are not really on the menu. What did you what did you come to see over these months of hanging out with kids, hanging out in fast food places that regardless of income seemed to be the draw? Yeah, so food spaces are inexpensive uh, to access for most kids. You can go to a McDonald's and actually not buy anything, um, which is unlike other kinds of sit-down restaurants where you are really expected to order something off the menu. But McDonald's, you don't need to do that. And so that means that access is pretty easy for them. And for lots of these places, it's pretty inexpensive, even if you are buying french fries or a burger. And that has a lot of appeal for young folks whose disposable income has grown, um, but they don't have the same kind of disposable income that uh, working parents have. And so they are looking for spaces where they can spend time that's outside of school and outside of home. And these commercial places are appealing in that regard. You spent so much time watching them. Did you come to realize that actually it's super good for them to have these spaces? Yes. These are places where kids go and they chit-chat about life. Um, There's a kind of performance in play at these places. Some of these places get really, really rowdy after school, Hmm. um, which is really interesting. I mean, I think that parents are sort of, and other adults are kind of running for the hills. They walk in and maybe turn around because (laughs) they see that these are places that are are sort of overrun by teenagers. And, um, And that's part of the appeal for young folks, too, is to be in a space. Most of the adults in these settings are behind counters. They're not at the tables with kids. And so they become these opportunities for kids to uh, really do the work of being a teenager. And sometimes we forget that part of, I mean, a really central part of doing the work of a teenager is figuring out who you are. And peers are really important to that. At some point, you started to talk to the kids about what their relationship with food was at home, how their families share meals or don't. Right. And then there was a lot of, they had a lot to say. And in a nutshell, what I found is that it's really, really hard for families today across the income spectrum to get a meal on the table, certainly every day. And that a lot of families are outsourcing or going to places outside of home uh, to get a meal. And some of that is driven by the fact that parents work in Uh, Whether you're talking about a family where you have one parent or you're talking about a family with two parents, parents are working. 
So, but we know that. Um, I think what we're less aware of is that kids' lives have grown busier and busier in the last decades, and that is particularly pronounced for upper-income kids, and that's one of the reasons why you see upper-income kids spending more time in fast food restaurants, even though they're not marketed uh, as aggressively as uh, lower-income kids. Do you see more upper-income kids in fast food restaurants? Well, I I do, but there is some interesting data that's not a part of my own data, but I did find that my interviews supported what the U.S. Census has found through their American Community Survey, which is that the lower the income, the greater likelihood to eat at home with your younger children, and that the higher the income, the greater likelihood to not eat at home. You did so much of your watching children eating and conversing and being with each other in school over meals and in fast food places over meals. What did you notice about the healthiness of the options available to them or what they chose or what they understood? I think the assumption is that kids, when they're in school, don't eat healthy food. And I did not find that. So one of the things that I did when I was in the schools, and I've spent lots of time in high schools, but also elementary schools, is I spend time looking through the garbage to see what gets thrown out. And I find that when you give a six or seven-year-old a pear that has not been cut up, that pear will go in the garbage. But if you give a six or seven-year-old a pear or an orange that has been sliced and is easy for them to eat, they will eat it. We know that uh, young people, when they're surveyed, that they do prioritize fresh fruit and, well, less vegetables, but fresh fruits in school over things like soda and candy. And one of the schools that I observed, uh, one of the lunch ladies took me through the way that they had set up the salad bar. They had made sure to have the vegetables be in the front row and all of the goodies like the dried cranberries and breadcrumbs in the back (laughs) Um, because they had found from the research that they did is that if you put the vegetables first, kids are more likely to take them. Mm. And so that was like a really thoughtful effort on the part of this school to prioritize vegetables with good effect. You also talked with a lot of organizations trying to get kids to eat healthier and teach Mm -hmm. them and show them. Anything else that you can share with us that you learned from this amazing immersion in the world of children and food? So I would say this, there's, you know, foods on our mind. And we have spent a lot of time in the last, I don't know, since 2008, talking about how to get kids to eat healthier foods. And I think that programs that deal with the sort of intangibles, programs that can build in meaningful shared rituals, like one of the programs I observed, all of the kids, when they tried new food, they always took the first bite together. (laughs) And that was just a rule. And it was so effective in creating a shared moment for those kids that they all would bite together. They would offer an evaluation. And what I found is that those kids asked for seconds and they asked for thirds and it really didn't matter what they were eating. Fascinating. Amy Best, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure.
Amy Best is a sociologist at George Mason University. Her book on the subject is called Fast Food Kids, French Fries, Lunch Lines, and Social Ties. Coming up next, why cocooning after concussion should be a thing of the past. If you ever got a concussion as a kid, doctors might have recommended cocooning. That's staying in a dark room, no reading, no TV. Don't use your brain at all. My next guest, Bob O'Connor, is chair of the University of Virginia's Department of Emergency Medicine. He's recently published new guidelines that say kids should actually return to normal activity as soon as possible after concussion. Bob, what exactly is a concussion? Can you ever just get a hard knock in your head and not have had a concussion? Well, that's what a concussion is. It's a hard knock in the head, whether it's a headache or variable symptoms. The person may be knocked unconscious. So pretty much any hard knock to the head is a concussion. What about teenagers who do headers in soccer? Are those always concussions? That's a great question. We're wondering if the cumulative effect of uh, headers repeated a thousand times over a soccer career could have some effect. That plus soccer players uh, tend to be going head first for the ball. And when two players get there at the same time, guess what happens? They knock heads. And that's how uh, soccer is uh, really one of the big sports where concussions happen. If people get multiple mild concussions back-to-back, that could have a more severe effect than uh, a traumatic brain injury even or a severe concussion. What can happen to the brain? Most likely it's what, brain bleeding? Uh, It could be brain bleeding. That's a more severe form of head injury that we talk about. Concussions more or less uh, may not involve bleeding. It may just be a knock to the head where someone uh, is unconscious for a few seconds, or they may have headaches afterwards or some other symptom. They may uh, have trouble focusing on a computer screen. They may have trouble uh, concentrating in class. So if their brain didn't bleed, what happened in their brain that led them to hurt or not focus or have double vision? Yeah, the brain, uh, whenever that happens, we think that there's some shearing force that happens where uh, neurons are actually disrupted in part of the brain. The brain will heal and people do recover from concussions, but it's important during that time period to minimize the subsequent injury and really promote uh, the healing process. Are children more vulnerable to the effects of having had a blow to the head than grown-ups are? We're uh, much more concerned about. We think that children uh, are more susceptible, especially during development. What prompted you and others to come out with the latest new guidelines? There are five specific recommendations that you're making. Why did you decide, let's change the rules? We didn't so much change the rules as we tried to find every available bit of evidence that was out there. We didn't create any new information. We tried to instead distill all the information that was out there into one set of guidelines. And the reason we did that is because there was so much uh, confusion on the part of uh, parents and healthcare providers over how do you properly manage these. And there's also uh, a renewed interest in it. You know, concussion is is, uh, an area that is a very hot topic now, especially because of boxing, professional football, childhood soccer, you know, high school soccer injuries are a big one. Ice hockey is another one. What was the confusion before? What sorts of things were doctors uncertain about when it came to evaluating somebody who might have a concussion? Well, there's uh, earlier in my career when uh, CT scans became very um, uh, widespread, we we had a very low threshold for uh, using the CAT scan to image uh, patients. I think we did a lot in cases that were not necessary. 
Uh, over the subsequent years, we've been able to develop guidelines that better predict who will have a, a finding on CAT scan so that we could forego imaging in uh, a lot of patients with minor concussions. So new recommendation number one is, especially with children, do not just automatically x-ray. That's correct. We want to uh, do a much more disciplined approach where we evaluate them for high-risk factors. And in the absence of those, the risk of uh, finding something on CAT scan is virtually zero. So we instead have the parents follow up after discharge with their pediatrician to watch the child for development of subsequent uh, vomiting, severe headache, um, you know, other worrisome symptoms. What is the test that you routinely do with children short of x-raying their brains? Well, we do a complete history and physical exam. You want to uh, make sure that there wasn't a prolonged loss of consciousness, that they hadn't experienced repeated vomiting at the scene, that their mental status was normal prior to uh, arrival. Then you do a physical exam, which consists of looking at uh, you know their motor activity, their speech. Have you ever done that and gotten slurred speech? Yes. Or you, uh, in severe cases, you'd have someone who's just making making no sense. You ask them what they had for lunch, and their response is something different. And that's very concerning. That's very concerning. And usually in those children, then we will go ahead with imaging. Or if they uh, can't follow simple commands such as, you know, raise your right hand or touch your nose or move your left foot, then we would go ahead with scanning. What about for babies who can't respond to your questions? Right. Um, for uh, children who aren't verbal, then we will look at how they're uh, probably how they're feeding, what they're, uh, how content they appear, how consolable they are with the mother. We'll ask the parents if they seem like they're behaving normally. You can't talk to them when they're preverbal, but you can observe simple simple things. Of the five, the recommendation that surprised me the most is the one where you say that children should return to normal activity in two or three days at the most after a concussion. I feel like there was a period where we were recommending a longer sort of cocooning stage where they lie absolutely still and do nothing. It's the other part of why we um, looked at these guidelines is to try to answer that question because it used to be that children were, it was recommended that they experience cognitive rest. That was the term that the healthcare professionals use. Uh, what that means is you want to uh, limit exposure to computers, anything that requires thinking or I don't think it's even achievable uh, to to get to that point. So what we're recommending is that the child resume normal activities within two or three days, but then if some activity causes uh, a recurrence of symptoms, for example, if when they're on the computer they experience a headache, that we have them limit that activity but resume everything else. And what about returning to actual sports and really hardcore activities? Yeah, that's a, a bigger question. And there I would recommend rest until uh, some period of time that they were deemed normal on follow-up with their, their doctor. Usually, uh, again, there's not evidence to say that two weeks is better than three weeks, but there's some period of time when they should rest after a concussion. And a lot depends on the severity of the, the concussion, too. If they experience loss of consciousness, uh, amnesia, or having prolonged headaches, or uh, other symptoms afterwards, then I would, I think most doctors would recommend a longer uh, duration of rest. You mentioned earlier back-to-back -back concussions. Is it dramatically more harmful when they come in close succession like that? Yeah, the, the thinking is that they really are, that the cumulative effect of two back-to-back -back concussions is worse than either one alone or worse than a more severe one to begin with. Most of the evidence indicates that the, the people who suffer from long-term consequences of concussion have had back-to-back -back ones. 
Uh, certainly the symptoms in the second one are more severe. How many years have you treated young people in emergency rooms? About 32 years. You know, after seeing all these children over all those years, have you concluded, my kids are never going to play blank? <laughs> Great question. I was thinking about putting them in bubble wrap when they were born, but that, that's <laughs> it's obviously never going to happen. Yeah. Um, I did um, experience uh, this with my uh, my son. I was at home one day. He was out just learning how to ride a bike. And my neighbor came uh, uh, running up to the front door with my son, and the bike's laying in the middle of the street. And the neighbor told me that uh, my son had run into the mailbox, and he was wearing a helmet. And he hands me the helmet, and there's this giant dent in the helmet that clearly would have caused a scalp laceration or some other injury. And he had absolutely no no injury. So I'd say absolutely prevention is the key. Bob O'Connor is chair of the University of Virginia's Department of Emergency Medicine. Coming up next, the convenience of the rideshare apps like Uber or Lyft doesn't always extend to parents. We'll talk about why. As rideshare apps like Uber and Lyft become more common, parents are having to make tough choices about how to keep their kids safe. Justin Owens is a research scientist at the Center for Vulnerable Road User Safety at the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. He helped put together a website called kidsridesafe.org. The site arms parents and rideshare drivers with more information about how car seats fit into the rideshare equation. Justin, how worried are you about babies and toddlers riding in ride-sharing vehicles? Well, it's it's becoming a bigger issue as more and more families take their children uh, in in rideshare vehicles and taxis. Um, so the the Department of Transportation estimated that roughly 328 children under the age of five uh, were saved in car crashes last year because they were properly restrained in, in child restraints. So it really is very important uh, that the children are properly buckled up in, in correct safety systems. You conducted a survey of parents and rideshare drivers about the use of car seats. What did you find? That's right. So we conducted um, both a nationwide survey of about 1,100 parents of children under the age of five, as well as a series of focus groups across Texas um, with with our colleagues at the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. Uh, And so what we found is that between a third and a half of parents reported that they had taken their children in rideshare vehicles at some point. And of those parents, uh, roughly half had at some point not used proper child restraints for those children. Uh, we, we also found about the same numbers from rideshare drivers, that about half of the drivers who had taken children had taken them without appropriate child restraints. And did you find that parents wanted car seats and Ubers and such, but they're hard to come by? Yes, that's right. So so parents really did, by and large, want to have their children properly restrained. Of course, in personal vehicles, parents almost universally carry their, their children in the correct child seats. Um, but it's it's an issue of having access to the seats themselves because they're, they can be big and bulky these days, especially when parents are traveling. It can be hard to carry them, uh, as well as having access to information about what types of seats are appropriate, what types of laws and regulations are in place across the country when you travel, as well as just having access to, to rideshare drivers uh, and taxis that, that have child seats available. 
So if you summon one of these rideshare vehicles, can you request a car seat? In certain big city markets like New York City and Washington, D.C., across the country, Uber and Lyft do have programs where you can request a, a, a rideshare vehicle with a front-facing car seat in, in it um, already installed. And, of course, that may or may not be the correct car seat. Uh, if you have an infant, that, that's, that's not the best way to carry them. Um, other than these major markets, though, it's really pretty hit or miss. We, we did find in our research that some rideshare drivers happen to have car seats along. If they're, if they're parents themselves, they may have a car seat in the trunk or already installed. But that's, that's really hit or miss in most of the country. What are the laws about car seats and personal vehicles? Are the laws different from what we expect of parents regularly carrying children in their own cars? So this is a good question because uh, all across the country, rideshare vehicles, uh, as far as we have been able to find out, count as personal vehicles under the law, which means that they are required to use uh, child passenger seats, ch- child safety seats when, when driving. Uh, this, this is different. It's kind of confusing for parents because in about two-thirds of the states, taxi cabs and certain other for-hire vehicles do have exemptions from those laws. So in a number of states, if you take a taxi, although it's the safest choice, it's not necessarily required to, to have a child seat. Um, and so, so this can be confusing to parents who may think that rideshare vehicles count as taxis under the law when they don't. Huh. So if I summon an Uber and I have two young children and I slip into the vehicle, if that driver is not carrying car seats or booster seats, can the driver refuse my children because it's not legal? Uber and Lyft always say that drivers should follow local laws wherever they are. Um, Since we're researchers here and not lawyers, I'm hesitant to comment on on the legality of issues. Um, But it's my understanding that that in in almost all cases, drivers are within their rights to, to refuse to do something that does not comport with the law. So what you did, you and your colleagues undertook a state-by-state systematic review of what are the laws if you want to transport your children via taxi or Uber in Texas or Montana. That's right. So, so as part of this project is that the first stage of this project, we did conduct a state-by-state review of all the regulations. And what we did with that is we've put together an outreach website, www.kidsridesafe.org, that provides a clickable map with state-by-state information as well as higher-level general information uh, for parents and rideshare drivers that they can go in and see exactly what the law says for their state. So there's, there's a summary of the regulations for each state as well as links for each state that go to the actual rules and regulations um, on, on the .gov sites so that parents and rideshare drivers can really go in and do their, their own research on this. What are next steps for you with this? Well, next steps are really to continue to raise awareness. I, I think that the, the laws are lagging behind. So as I said, in most cases, uh, rideshare vehicles are not explicitly codified under the law, whether or not they count as for hire vehicles. So um, I, I, I think regulators and parents need to be talking, and, and the rideshare industry need to be talking with one another to figure out what the safest and most consistent ways to transport children are. Are you aware of whether there's ever any enforcement of no car seat in a Lyft or Uber, and whether it would be the driver or the parent who's responsible? That's a really good question because, again, it varies state by state where that responsibility legally lies, uh, whether it lies with the driver of the vehicle and or the parent of the child. Um, of course, we we always think that it's it's the parent's responsibility to transport their child safely, but that, that may or may not uh, be, be the legal definition of responsibility. Well, this is a great first step, what you've done with 
looking at the state-by-state rules for child restraints in public transport vehicles. Exciting to see what you might do next. Justin Owen, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Justin Owens is a research scientist at the Center for Vulnerable Road User Safety at the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. You can find his information about using rideshare with kids at kidsridesafe.org. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Every January, millions of us start the new year with a promise to ourselves to hit the gym. Many gyms see a surge in membership up to 50% in the first few weeks of the year. But by April, those numbers drop off, along with the resolutions about getting in shape. This is With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Today we'll hear from two people who don't need the gym. They've made marathon running their year-round fitness activity. First, Francis Bush. Francis is a professor of accounting at the University of Lynchburg. He started marathon running at the age of 63. Now he's reaching for a new endurance sport, triathlons. His training now includes swimming and biking as well as running. He hopes to complete the half Ironman in Williamsburg this coming May. He says it all began when he took up a marathon runner's challenge to run all over the country, a marathon in each state and the District of Columbia. Francis, I'm so impressed you've now completed a marathon in each of the states. Is there a particular club for that? Well, there's actually three internet clubs that you can belong to. There's one for each of the states, 50-50. Then there's 50-50 DC, which is what I do. And then there's the maniacs, and they just try to to accumulate as many marathons around the world as they possibly can. But I like to tell people I run 26 miles to enjoy the last point, too. It just feels so great running down that finish line. A marathon is 26 miles. Point two. Point two. It's the point two that really makes, that for me, for me, it makes it the most fun and excitement. What's the worst thing most new marathon runners don't realize but do? I think the most important thing is to stay focused on their own race. You, you tend to want to keep pace with people. And e- even many races start with corrals, so you're in a certain speed group, or they have people run at a set pace. There's this pull, kind of like a current, an emotional current. And if you go too fast, you'll hit the wall too early. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm pretty good. I pretty much have the first half and the second half about the same amount of time. How fast is your marathon? It depends upon where and when. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten as fast as a 431 in North Carolina, and then in Leadville, Colorado, it took over eight hours. <laughs> but that was more like mountain climbing. Yeah, that was the Rockies. <laughs> it, it was the Rocky. The, the starting point was at 10,000 feet, and we had to run from uh, 11,000 to 13,000 feet in uh, three miles. Didn't you dry out? More like breathe out. Um, <laughs> I couldn't go two and a half minutes before I'd have to literally stop and breathe. Just standing still and go. And then you keep going. What was the most thrilling marathon? Probably would be Boston. 
Oh, of course. Uh, Boston is the top of the line for marathoning this country. The whole town is like running through a tailgate party for 26 (laughs) miles. So that would be the most exciting. Each marathon has its own special. You name a state, and I'll tell you something special about that marathon. Alaska. Alaska was the first one I did in the in the journey, but it was a small race. There were 43, I think, marathoners and a group of half marathoners, and they did a delayed start. So people like me got to go first. So there were 13 of us. Everyone had their toe on the start line. That doesn't happen for somebody who runs like I do. Um and it rained the whole time. <laughs> but I was at the start line, I was at the finish line, and, and it was it was Alaska, and Alaska is a beautiful state. Louisiana. Louisiana was very special for me because of a very difficult time. It was the first marathon I had run after my mother had died, and she was always so impressed with my marathon story. So that was, my friend at work had died also, and she had gone to LSU, and New Orleans was her big town. And that's where I was running. New Orleans? New Orleans. And it was one of the rock and roll series. And so that's well organized. That's very well organized. It makes it easy. Uh, But for me, I was thinking about my mom and my friend. So that made it special. You said she knew your marathon story. What is your marathon story? Have Have you always run them? No, I started running. I started running them at 43 years of age. I'm 61 now. And so that's well organized. That's very well organized. It makes it easy. Uh, But for me, I was thinking about my mom and my friend. So that made it special. You said she knew your marathon story. What is your marathon story? Have you you always run them? No, I started running. I started running them at 43 years of age. I'm 61 now. It was just something she was glad to see me that athletic. I mean, you're proud of your son who's athletic, and it's something she could talk about. Uh, When I ran near her town, she'd come out. She came down to Tennessee. She went up to Kentucky to see me finish because that was important to her. And she found a little connection there that my son runs marathons. How about West Virginia? West Virginia, amazingly, was my second fastest race. It's where Marshall University is. You might know the movie um, We Are Marshall. Yes. And you know the tragedy in 1973, they lost their team. Well, where the race runs, you're on the river playing, and you come around the corner to the finish line, and you run down the football field to the goal line. This is that field where they played. And if you've seen the movie where they won that game against Ohio University or some school, yeah, this is a very touching moment. And for people my age, that would be my senior year in college was the year that happened. What do you say as you're running? Do you have repetitive rhymes that give you a cadence that you stay in touch with, or do you sing? I have a set playlist that I do not change. All kinds of music from the Supremes to uh, Luke Bryant to a wild set of uh, things I've gotten from my kids' stuff. But then about towards three hours that comes into a Broadway musical. And the reason I have the Broadway musical there, it's so long that by the time it's over, I'll be close to an hour to the end. So it's a, a timing. Are you talking about you're singing these songs? Or no, you're I'm, playing listening them to them. A... I'm listening to them. Oh. And I'm saying the rosary, which is a, a prayer that my religion has. Uh, Catholicism. Yeah, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I say all four decades, 
all four mysteries twice. There's the Our Father, Ten Hail Marys, the Glory Be, and you do that for each of the 20 mysteries. Uh, the birth of Christ, the uh, crucifixion, the resurrection, and there's a total of 20 of them. How many miles does that take you? Usually it'll get the first go round will get me to about 14 or 15 miles. Oh, that's far. That's right. And like I said, once you get to 16, there's that magic moment, if the wall's not there, <laughs> that you begin to count down. Yeah. When did you realize, I'm going to run 50 marathons in 50 states? Probably on my way home from the last one. <laughs> All of a sudden, it was over. And it, that's when it began to hit me that I'd been to every state. I had done this traveling. I had done this running. I had met these people. And I had these experiences. And it was quite, quite a load when I first realized that it was over. What do you mean a load? It was just felt heavy. You know, oh, my God. I could not believe I had actually done it. At some point, your daughter joined you for one of the marathons. Well, what happened is for Father's Day, she said, I got you such a great Father's Day gift. And, I, <laughs> and it was one of those things, okay, this is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. I've got to be surprised. It's got to be great, right? <laughs> and we go out to dinner with her husband, and she gives it to me, and it's a book. When you get a book, you know it's a book. And I'm thinking, this has got to be a great story. This is going to be a fabulous book. And I start to open it up, and it goes, four months to a four-hour marathon. And I'm thinking, what is it? And, and she could tell I, I was clueless. And she goes, Daddy, the book's for me. I'm going to run the last one with you. Oh, gosh. And that's special because my daughter played goalie so she could run less. So she had no enthusiasm for running. And so she started training. And she trained for two, three months, and she found out she was pregnant. So she calls us up, and she goes, got good news and bad news. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can't run the marathon. Of course, I knew right away that meant she was pregnant. But she really, really wanted to do it, and the doctor said okay. And so she came. She, her husband... The baby, myself, and a friend from high school took off for our last mar my last marathon in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The gun went off, and my friend and my son-in-law, they took off, and my daughter and I took off too, but we were a little slower. You were doing that for her? <laughs> of, yeah. We ran 18, 19 miles together. That's a lot of time for father and daughter to be together. And That was actually hard, though, wasn't it, to stay on a pace with each other? No. It's your daughter, and she's pregnant. You're not going anywhere. Oh, how beautiful. You know, and it, and it, so we could talk and just chit-chat and nothing too serious. And then because of the pregnancy, her doctor said she had to take a very light electrolyte drink. So I'd make her drinks for her. And we fell in with three other women who were doing a walk-run program. And she stayed with them, and I'd run ahead, and then I'd come back, and I'd run ahead. and So she wasn't alone. You're not going to leave your daughter especially pregnant, out in the, by herself. So I'd run ahead and make her drinks and tell the, my daughter's coming, she's a little blonde woman, you won't know if she's pregnant, but this is, tell her that daddy made this drink for her and, and then and <laughs> would leave the drink and I'd go down. And yeah. I finished in about 6.15, so I was close, and she finished in 6.27. Does that mean she made it? Yes, and so did the other three women. You've inspired a lot of other people to take up marathon running. 
What do you say to people who hear your story now and think, I want to do what he did, but they're frightened? That would be a normal reaction. I'd be afraid, too. I was afraid, too. Uh, and set, your, set a set of steps to get there. If you want it, you can have it. As long as you're, check with your doctor, make sure your body's up for it. Check that first and then set your steps according to your pace. I went from 5K to 10K to half. And then on the third one, I found a running partner at the race. We had both lined up in the wrong place because we thought of ourselves at a certain pace. (laughs) So we, we were well suited for each other. And so off we took. And we started talking, and we talked for 24 miles. Well, Francis Bush, this is so inspiring. Thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And hear this. This is from your running music playlist from the soundtrack of the movie Invictus. I can see why you love running to it. Coming up next, the fundamentals of running, starting with a visit to the Ragged Mountain Running Shop, a popular shoe store in Charlottesville, Virginia. One of our producers, Kelly Libby, recently stopped in looking for a new pair of shoes. While she was there, she had a gait analysis done. Kelly joins me in the studio to talk about what she learned. Kelly, did you end up buying a new pair? I did, and here they are. Oh, those are wonderful gray with sort of neon yellow and turquoise. Yeah, they're fun colors. How did you pick them? Well, it wasn't based on the colors. That would have been my inclination, I think. It was just the results of the gait analysis. So why did you have a gait analysis done? Well, it's funny because I was actually just thinking of going online to buy some shoes, you know, some shoes that would be on sale. But I thought, you know, running is uncomfortable for me as it is. So maybe if I find a shoe that's better for my foot, I'll enjoy running more. Did you already have in mind the kind of shoe you thought they would give you? I did. I thought I'd need a more structured shoe. I think of myself as having weak feet because especially as a child, my feet pronated, which means they sort of turned inward. So what happens in the gait analysis? So one of the store's employees, his name is Mike Inge, had me walk up and down the store several times in different kinds of shoes, and he intently watched my ankles and feet to see how they performed in the shoes. I'm also going to look at you from the side. It's just a kind of a three-dimensional gait analysis so that I can actually see the height of your arch and how it changes when you bear weight. So, And as you're walking here, I'm seeing the arch not change height very much, which is uh, pointing more towards a... Uh, a neutral gait, so it looked more like you were pronating when I was looking at you straight on, but now that I watch you from the side, it looks a little bit more neutral, so. These feel the best, I think. It's a surprise, you know, you, you got into a neutral shoe, think, you know, we kind of had a preconceived notion that you would be a pronator, but. Well, I'll take them. happy? Yeah. <laughs> Have you tried out your new shoes yet? Yes, I've actually been running on the treadmill. Um, it's too cold outside, <laughs> but they're working great. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Not all runners have a gait analysis done, but Corey Hewson recommends it. 
He's head coach of the women's soccer team at the University of Mary Washington. He also teaches a demanding one-credit class that trains students to run a half marathon. The beauty of your class is that it takes almost non-runners, and by the end of it, many of them are running a half marathon. It is pretty unique. Um, and at first, we got we had some seasoned athletes, uh, but as word got out, more of the intermediate and definitely down to novice. Uh, so we had a pretty wide range of kids, and uh, it was great to see them all out there working at the same level. You're not used to novices, though. You're used to highly skilled, fit women soccer players. Did you have confidence that you could take somebody who was really a non-runner and train her in the course of a semester to do a half marathon? Absolutely. You know, the big thing is sticking to the training program and going out, having people that are at the same skill level, uh, having that support base. Uh, So again, you can go back and see what you did. You know, I ran a mile and a half today. I ran two miles uh, today, and tomorrow I'm going for two and a half. What about the right shoes? Uh, Very important. Uh, Virginia Runner, who's a local running store, they came in early in the semester and did running diagnostics on on each student to get them in the right shoe, whether they're overpronating. The worst thing that you can do is go out and run in the wrong shoe or a shoe that's been worn too long, too many miles. And from there, you can pick up injuries, quads, hamstrings, shin splints. So it is, I think it is important if you're going to go out and log those miles and take on a task of running a 5K, 10K, half marathon to go to a professional and, and get diagnosed. What are the fundamentals that you go over in the first two weeks that get people out there who are not runners? Don't push it. Whether you're an athlete or a non-athlete, the first thing you want to do is you want to go out and set records. Uh, you want to push yourself to the limit. And whether that's an experienced runner trying to go out and run a six-minute mile pace or it's a novice runner trying to push themselves to run three or four miles when maybe a mile, mile and a half is it. Um, it's really just learning what you're capable of. So what do you have people do those first two weeks? Well, I'd say the first couple sessions, one, just getting familiar with each other, doing a light, light little jog. But then we do a track test. We go out, run a mile and a half. And based on that, we look at paces. We look at what their overall time was. And from there, we can put them in groups. Can any of them not run a mile and a half yet? I think, you know, it's one of those things when you get in front of your peers, you're going to push yourself. Yeah. You're going to make sure you can you can finish that mile and a half. It may not be pretty, but we're looking at the overall pace and the overall time. Okay. Where do you go from there? We put them in groups. A lot of the kids that come to class come with a friend, and they want to r- run with that friend. But that friend may be a little bit faster, a little bit slower. And it's hard when you're pushing yourself to talk and have a good conversation with somebody that's running faster than you. So it's important to make the kids understand that when we put them in the groups, it's for the best. How many tiers or groups do you have? We start off in three. As we go along after five, six weeks, uh, we'll find that maybe we need to create a fourth, whether it's on the slow end or the high end. Let's say you're, you're now into four groups and six weeks into the class. About what pace and how much running is each group doing? Uh, it's really based off Jeff Galloway's training for a half marathon. It goes by time, not by distance. That way, it's a little more comfortable because if you say, hey, run four miles, they may get discouraged. But if you say, hey, run 35 to 40 minutes, it, it's not necessarily running. They may go five minutes, two minutes walking, five minutes, two minutes walking. So then they feel accomplishment. And on that off day in between, uh, Tuesday they'll run, Wednesday is an off day, a rest day. Thursday again, 35, 40 minutes. Friday will be a walk day. Saturday will be an off day. And Sunday is their long day. As the weeks go on, you'll still do 35, 40-minute runs. 
But as you get to Sunday, the distance increases. By about the sixth or seventh weekend, they're probably running six miles on Sunday. And it, it gradually increases. And then during the week, the times increase just slightly. So 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, which works out well because that's the length of class. Are you, as a coach and as a professor leader of this, a taskmaster, or are you a, um, a motivator? It's a hard question. Let's say a little bit of both. Um, you know, I'm attention to detail type of guy. Uh, I want to make sure that they're, they're putting the time in. But at the same time, I know how hard it is to get out there and run, especially those days you don't want to. You know, so maybe running with a different group. Maybe I'm slated to run with the uh, more experienced group. But I see those novice kids kind of a little sluggish out of the gate, taking a little extra long s- stretching, trying to make it look like they're syncing up their watches. <laughs> and I may pop over with them and say, hey, you know, where are we going today? Let's go for a run. You'll run with them. I do run with them. I'll run with each group each day. I try to float back and forth between the different groups. I mean, I, I love running, so it's a little bit harder sometimes to run with the novice groups. When you're a little bit faster, it's hard to run off your pace slower. That's interesting. But I didn't know that. It is. It's actually, I think, sometimes more of a challenge. But, you know, it's, it's what I do. And I remember when I first started running and having that extra person talking to you, uh, you know, they're maybe struggling for their breath a little bit. But, you know, as we're getting to a hill, talking to them, motivating them. And it's not, you know, being that Marine gung-ho type thing. It's just, hey, you can do this, you know, a little while longer. We can get some coffee, donuts. Let's, let's do this. Let's finish this up. <laughs> Do you get to have donuts, or is that considered a no-no? Well, it's at 11 o'clock, so usually I I have my lunch right after. Right. Do you recommend other people and campuses across the country starting up courses like this? You know, I think this is something that uh, goes beyond the typical college course, maybe in physical education. You know, I took one in college called Jogging for Better Health, but I remember my instructor drove his car to the checkpoints. It's kind of... um, contradictory in a sense. You know, here we are running, jogging for better health, and the instructor's in a car. Uh, You know, I look at jogging and training for a half marathon or a full marathon as something that's going to lead you on through life, and I think I'm a good example of that. Uh, I try to get out and run every day on campus and through town. Uh, The students see me. Uh, I see them when they're running. You know, it's a quick thumbs up as you're out of breath or sweating. You know, I think it's something that can take them out to the real world as as a stress reliever and promote a long, healthy life. When there was the terrible bombing in the Boston Marathon, you all found a way to sort of do your bit for that. It was it was kind of one of those things that just happened at the last minute. And within about a week, we went from just our class running to about 200, 250 uh, participants from the university campus, along with just some everyday people around Fredericksburg. It blew up. I'd say it went viral, not big time, but went viral for, for campus in Fredericksburg. Uh, we had a Twitter feed, a Facebook page. We had a lot of people that joined the event. You know, we never knew how many were going to show up. Uh, but our people in the, the PR department at Mary Washington agreed to have some T-shirts printed. A local vendor chipped in some extra money to get more T-shirts made. Was this a fundraiser for Boston? It was. It was for the one fund out of Boston for the for the victims. Um, so we made these T-shirts run for Boston. And we handed them out and asked for donations. And I think we raised just over $1,400. And this was all off about uh, three or four days' work. What a terrific thing to do. Thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you. Corey Hewson is head coach of women's soccer at the University of Mary Washington. 
Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had studio help from Bill Foy of Virginia Tech. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.